CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the On July 16, 1969, the world watched with bated breath as three men were propelled upwards through the blue sky to go where no one had gone before. Even with the most powerful rocket that had ever been developed for the time, it would take three days before Michael Collins, Buzz Aldrin, and Neil Armstrong would make it to their destination, would make it to the moon. In the years since the moon landing, Apollo 11 has become the hallmark of human achievement. We all know about Neil Armstrong's famous one small step, and most of us can imagine an astronaut standing next to the American flag. It's easy for something as monumental as landing on the moon to overshadow pretty much anything else. I mean, what can really top the story of humankind conquering space? But because of this, there are lots of stories of Apollo 11 that haven't been told and haven't been listened to. With the help of Phil Plate, astronomer and author of Sci-Fi.com's Bad Astronomy blog, we're hoping to tell some of those stories. The ones that got overshadowed by the gargantuan nature of the moon landing. The first of which is a story about how close we were to not making it to the moon at all. NASA had a lot of missions to go into space, basically building each step up to get to the first landing on the moon. There were the Mercury missions, the Gemini missions, and then Apollo, each one of these more complicated, more ambitious. Each mission improved upon the last, fixed mistakes, improved efficiencies, and honed the process so that in 1969, we would be able to bring the Apollo 11 crew into the orbit of the moon and be ready to take the final steps towards landing on it. The way this worked is Buzz and Neil get onto the lunar lander, which is that insect-looking thing, and drop down to the surface of the moon. Now, all of this is being guided by basically physics. Everything was mapped out. They knew the pull of the moon's gravity, the speed of the lander. They knew exactly where it was going to land as long as everything went according to plan. Problem was... Uh, you can't predict everything. While they were trying to land on the surface, one of the lander's vents was shooting out gas at such a fast rate, it was actually accelerating them in the wrong direction. And by the time uh, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin in their lander were over the lunar surface approaching their landing spot, they realized they had traveled too far, farther than they expected, by about three miles. It's easy to think that a difference of just three miles in landing isn't that big of a deal. After you travel all the hundreds of thousands of miles from 
Earth to the moon, what's another three? But everything for the moon landing is supposed to be down to the last decimal point. Everything that they planned for was based on this one landing zone. So when they realized they were three miles off, their computer didn't know how to react. And so the onboard navigation was trying to land them in a giant crater filled with boulders. Some of them uh, eight, nine, ten feet in size. And you don't want to land on, near, anywhere close to one of these things. The lunar, <laughs> lunar module was very fragile. They had really shaved all the weight off of this thing, so there wasn't a lot of structural strength to it. And because it was so fragile, any bump to any of the boulders would have caused a crack or a hole in the lunar lander. And anything like that would have caused something similar to an explosion as all of the air inside the module got sucked into the vacuum of space, shooting Buzz and Neil outward, never slowing down, propelling further and further away forever. Everything is, is basically stacked against them, except for human ingenuity. That's what we had. So Armstrong took control. Manually overriding the computer's navigation system, he begins to maneuver the lunar lander away from the boulders. By this point, they're three miles away from the terrain that they've been practicing their landings on. They don't know where they are, and they don't know how they've gotten there. So before Neil is able to land, he needs to find a place that won't destroy the lunar lander, because if he does, him and Buzz will be stuck on the moon forever. Um, and by the time he saw that there was a good spot and set them down, he only had 770 pounds of fuel left. Now, 770 pounds of fuel probably doesn't mean much to most people, but it translates into roughly 45 seconds of flight time. He had 45 seconds before the entire lunar lander would become dead weight and succumb to the bit of gravity that the moon does have. To make matters worse, if he got below 20 seconds of fuel, he wouldn't have enough to abort the mission. So in other words, if he saw that, yeah, we can't do this, there's just too much junk on the moon, I can't make it down, we can't land safely, he would have to hit a button which would shoot them up off the surface of the moon. And he needed uh, enough fuel left to do that. So every second that, that Neil Armstrong is hovering over the moon looking for a safe spot to put down is one more second's worth of fuel that they needed to get back up into space if he could not find a safe space. There aren't many times in life where you get to see, in real time, a countdown to what could be your own death. A countdown to when you're absolutely out of options. Most people, if they were to see that, the clock ticking away would be paralyzed from fear. But there's a reason why it was these two men. Why Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong were selected for this very mission. 
Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong are test pilots uh, with long histories of very dangerous situations. One of the reasons Neil Armstrong was picked to land the, uh, the lunar module, he had ice water for blood under pressure. So with a clear head on his shoulders and the entire world watching, Neil guides the lander over the boulder-filled crater and sees an area clear from debris and makes his way towards it. And as the seconds of fuel they have left tick away, they slowly descend to the surface. Every foot closer they get, breaking new barriers as to how close any human had been to the surface of the moon before. As they slowly approach the final few feet, the exhaust from the lunar lander blows up the dust around them. Shimmering gray dust that shoots straight up into space, seemingly forever, not spinning like it would on Earth, just suspended in the nothingness of space. As they eventually touch down, you can hear over the intercom from Mission Control just how relieved everybody is after such a tense landing. Tranquility base here. The Eagle has landed. Roger, Tranquility. We copy you on the ground. You got a bunch of guys about to turn blue. We're breathing again. Thanks a lot. The Eagle, against all odds, had landed on the moon. Apollo 11 had accomplished its first major breakthrough. And now it was time for Neil's next small step onto the moon. This has been the first of five special episodes from Sci-Fi Wire celebrating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. If you like this story, please remember to subscribe to Revisiting Apollo 11, Five Untold Stories, to hear the other stories that we have to tell. Available wherever you get your podcasts. 